Hello and welcome to episode one of Rosma's new Disrupting the Timeline video podcast, where we challenge, discuss and analyze. I'm Shakela Forbes-Bell, Rosma's marketing manager, and today our topic is mapping out the future of diversity and inclusion. Um, joining me today is Tom Adiula. Um, Tom is a technology entrepreneur. He was CEO and founder of Acquired Apparel Technology Scale-Up Metail. He is currently a co-founder of Extended Ventures, which aims to diversify access to finance for underrepresented founders through data and research. He also serves as non-exec director for Zero Carbon Monitoring Consultancy Verco um, and Environmental Behaviour Change Up Startup Do Nation. In addition, he is a board trustee for the creative incubator MeWe360, chair of the Mindfulness App Spoke, and served on the board of the revolutionary women's personal wellness scale-up ALV. Tom is the inspiration behind the government seed enterprise investment scheme. Hi Tom, thanks for joining us today. Um, we also have Adesua Ajayi. Um, having worked in the influencer and creative space for a number of years, this year Adesua created Influencer Pay Gap, an Instagram page set up to support payment transparency in the influencer space, particularly with regards to black influencers. On the page, influencers spent sending their highest pay paid gig alongside information such as race, follower size, niche and so on. Since its creation in June it has grown into a community of over 40,000 people and um, has helped thousands of influencers and creators as well as small businesses navigate the space, space much easier. Hi Desua, thanks for joining us. Um, and Last but certainly not least, we have Jessica Lawrence. Um, Jessica is a digital content specialist, simultaneously holding social media manager positions at various media publications and working as an influencer, model, consultant and content creator. From Expedia to DMG Media and now Condé Nast folks, Vogue Business as a social media manager, she is experienced at being the frontline representative for brands' digital presence. In the influencer space, she has worked on high-profile campaigns with many brands including Nike, Farfetch, Urban Outfitters, Teen Vogue, Burberry, JD Sports, Zalando and more. In addition, she uses her social media channels to raise awareness around Black Lives Matter and racial inequality, notably shedding light on racism within the sneaker industry, a passion of hers. Hi Jessica, thanks for joining us today. Um, so thank you all for joining me today. I'm super excited to get stuck into this conversation. Um, I'm going to start with you, Tom, and kick this off by talking about the events of this summer, um, where, of course, we all know we saw the powerful second iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so, Tom, what do you think is so different about this iteration and how do you think it's progressed since its inception in 2013? Yeah, so I, I've been trying to think about this a lot. You know, why was this moment so different why was it um why did it reach so many people and why did it feel certainly to me like it it changed the whole narrative structure around the the race debate um i think there's sort of several different answers to that and i think ultimately it was like a lot of perfect things coming together in terms of being able to create that that perfect storm that that generated that all-encompassing sort of sense of um a global debate on the issue. So I've, I've generally look, been looking at, there have been lots of iterations in the past, and as you mentioned, Black Lives yeah. Matter has, has come around once before, and it didn't really get in that traction. And I think it's the same with, if you think about the Occupy movement in the early noughties, it sort of felt like in a post-Trumpian world, mm -hmm. the muscle memory for protest has been sort of dialed up a notch. So people have realised that, you can't outsource all of your 
values and issues to government. Government aren't going to do it and we the people must generate change. So you've seen dramatic influence in the likes of like Me Too movement, um, LGBTQ, Extinction Rebellion, all since 2017, having sort of progressive impact with real tangible um, influences in, in, in the policy agenda. Mm -hmm. I think this time round, after the, the, the deaths that were happening in progressive order, um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, um, and then George Floyd, at the same time whilst the general public were all under lockdown, um, reflecting on life and the fact that you know, once you take away um, all the elements of the economic system, commerce, shopping, travel, what was underlying and exposed was the, the skeleton and how unequal it was really was, you know, shone in, in all its terrible, um, you know, non-glory, right? So the, the inequity of the, the global system, the social system and the economic system has just been something that I think everybody's been thinking about. And I think that's why in, in this movement, it wasn't just a case of, black people um, protesting, it, it felt more like everybody was involved. Everybody was having the debate and the debate was no longer one which was binary about are you racist or not. It was about what are all of the elements that generate racism and how can you be anti-racist, right? So how yeah. can you be positively anti-racist? And I think that was quite extraordinary. And I think it's been really interesting. I've had conversations with, with friends, white friends, black friends, that I've never had before. And I think, you know, it, it's, I hope that that wave continues, but I already see the beginnings of progressive change at a, at a local and a business level. And in fact, the thing that's coming last and is moving slowest is, is a governmental level. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad that all of these things had to happen to create some sort of imperfect storm, um, as you would, um, for this movement really to gain traction. But like you said, it's, it's nothing that we've seen before. And it's, this year has really been kind of what we needed to have those real conversations and really push the conversations forward. Um, so I guess coming to you, um, Jess, so we all saw the wave of black squares at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, the second iteration. Um, how have brands progressed beyond performative activism? Oh, Jess, I think you might be muted. <laughs> Did I not unmute myself? Sorry. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Um, so what I will say is I think some brands have definitely progressed beyond this performative allyship or kind of performative social media presence in, in supporting Black Lives Matter by actually pledging and showing some accountability, which I've never actually seen before in my life on social media. Um, for example, the 15% pledge, which Vogue recently took um, to support these black businesses. So I think what's super important is that brands continue to do this and not be bogged down by um, how long it takes or the conversations that are uncomfortable, but actually looking into their hiring, looking into their teams, looking into how they can do better and actually putting their hands up and being accountable for where they've been lacking previously. I think what's been great about this movement for me personally is that accountability and how it's no one's expecting everyone to be perfect from the get go now, but it, it's really showing that what you do and the steps that you take from here on out are the most important. 
so I think, as I said, the most important things for brands now to not just be doing it for performance is mm -hmm. to actually be having these conversations offline all the time with teams to reassess who they're working with, the freelancers, the writers, who their consultants are, who their HR sourcing company is, all these kind of things. And actually really, really reassess how they can do better and have inclusion and representation running through every single aspect of the business, not just on social media. Yeah. And just um, moving from brands, I guess, to the creators as well, who are becoming brands within their own right these days. As a mixed race influencer yourself, what changes have you noticed since this second iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement? Hmm. I think it's, it's quite difficult for me to, to speak and to know how much has changed just because of the coronavirus. So in the, in the initial start of um, the movement, I was getting a lot of traction on the type of content that I wouldn't normally post. I, I, I've spoken about race and my experiences as a black woman quite a lot, but I wouldn't say as frequently as I, I do now, just because of the movement and reassessing what it means for me now. Um, and I really noticed a big traction on that type of content, not that I would ever do it for the traction, but I've just really noticed there's an appetite and my followers, my friends, my network are very eager to learn and to do better and to actually understand in ways that I've never experienced before. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of being booked on shoots and being booked by brands, I wouldn't actually say there's been a change for me in terms of the type of brands that I'm working with and I'm being approached by. I think it was probably the same as pre-corona era. Um, but I do know a lot of people in the space who have been booked on different campaigns, working with brands that they thought they'd be overlooked um, by before. So yeah. I definitely think that in the conversations that these PR companies and brands are having, they are definitely looking to be more uh, represent representative. But I do think it needs to go further than just the talent that you're booking. Yeah. And keeping on the theme of representation within social media, um, coming to you, Adesua, can you tell us a bit more about Influencer Pay Gap and what motivated you, what motivated you to start it in the first place? Sure. Um, the Influencer Pay Gap, I started, to be honest, out of frustration. Um, I guess, you know, being in the creative space for a while, it's not unknown, you know, that um, black, you know, creators, influencers, people across different um, roles within the creative industry and just social media um, definitely deal with a unique type of, you know, experience. And mm -hmm. um, for me, it kind of felt like I started to notice that, you know, if you say, for example, if you're an influencer, a black influencer, and you didn't necessarily have a network of other influencers to kind of rely on and speak to about specific things such as pay, um, you kind of were winging, you know, like a lot of people are in this space, literally winging it. And um, I just felt that there needed to be a space where they kind of were able to see what other people were earning across a variety of demographics, specifically um, a Caucasian um, individuals, what they're earning in their spaces as well. And being able to kind of, you know, understand that if, a, if the specific brand has worked with all these people across all these dif different demographics and say for example you know you have you know maybe beyond just the follower and engagement rate but you definitely have a significant amount of you know influence and ca the capacity to really um you know bring about those results for that brand mm -hmm. then you kind of start to realize that okay maybe you are being gaslighted do you get what mm -hmm. i mean it's not 
that you have never suspected it and you've never known it. But a lot of times, you know, it's so easy for things as such as like exploitation and abuses to continue because people aren't able to compare and make that kind of obvious comparison amongst um, other people in the space. And I just felt that there needed to kind of be an easy space, not to say, not to say that there um, there isn't already, but like just a space on the kind of social media that people can just literally see, okay, so-and-so, you know, this demographic, you know, this, you know, niche, um, with this following engagement rate, this was what mm-hmm. I thought my gig was. And yeah. it, I think that kind of data is so powerful because it really does does speak to the injustices that um, people face. And, and also it's kind of like, you know, for a long while, there's always this kind of thing where, you know, people kind of suspect that things are happening, but, you know, the wider, you know, structure will act as if it isn't happening at all, you yeah. know, yeah. act as if you're just overdoing it by stating these are the things that I experience, um, you know, and it, it, I think um, similarly to what um, Jessica said, I, I do think, you know, in, in looking at the changes in this space, you've in, during time, not to say that, you know, there still aren't any issues, but I guess there's an overarching sense of like, you can't deny things now, you know, like as clear as day, you, you mm-hmm. can't deny it when say, for example, Liam's Melissa and I've forgotten the amazing woman, but um, I, I think she collaborated with um, Jackie Ina and, you know, they were asking brands to release their stats, you know, these yeah. are things black you know influencers brown influencers have been speaking about for a long while but you mm-hmm. speak or act as if you're just overdoing it you, you're just like bringing something out of thin air you know but now the stats are coming out you know and it's and it's as clear as day and i think that level of transparency is so important because it's it's like here here they are so wh- where do we move from here you know so yeah yeah I think it's amazing. Um, I think as the influencer space is becoming um, a lot more like legitimized, um, it makes sense for discussions around wage parity um, to come towards it. So I think it's great that you are actually one of the innovators creating change within the space, change that's so desperately needed um, as we move towards like authenticity within the space in general. I think it was Saren Shooter with Uma Beauty. I think that's who you're talking about. Yeah, so um, we actually did um, some some research um, over on Rizma's um, platform and found that her engagements like shot up after she launched that campaign. So it shows that people are actually actually craving content that is talking about socially like conscious content and is talking about diversity. It does have the support of the people. So we just need to get more of that out there. Um, and you started Influencer Pay Gap in June and it's already topping 40,000 followers on Instagram. Why do you think now you've received such a massive wave of support um, I think it's, 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 it's layered. I think on, when we're dealing with black influencers specifically, I definitely think, um, it was, it has been helpful, really helpful for black influencers to really, you know, understand like, okay, this is what this brand is, is doing this, what this other brand has been doing. And, and the, this is what certain types of influencers are getting paid in this area. And it's beyond just, you know, talking about maybe d- just the disparity. Sometimes it's really learning how to kind of price yourself. Um, mm. 
one thing that's become very apparent from creating the page is understanding that whilst yes there are disparities and yes there are ex the, the levels of exploitation um there's also kind of a lack of education um in in some regards not to say everyone who navigates the space doesn't know what they're doing but in some regards you know some people are just clueless and don't know how to navigate it and feel like, you know, they, they don't know what the next step is for them, how to price themselves, you know, within this space as well. And, um, you know, them being able to see what people roughly charge um, in regard to their highest paid, of course, like different deliverables kind of created a way for them to, you know, really understand, okay, these are things I should be taking into consideration when people approach me, when brands approach me, then, okay, that's something that I can take on board. But then there's also the dynamic of, you know, the fact that whilst Black influencers definitely deal with a lot of, you know, bad experiences within the space, as well as but there are um, a lot of unique experiences that black influencers do face there are also groups of people that also experience different degrees of you know just mistreatment and and there's also an overarching culture within you know the industry um that you know just given the fact that it's largely unregulated you know yeah. um, to be able to get away with things you know you have you know some agencies that are capable of you know completely lowballing influencers simply because no one's no one's keeping an eye on you know what they're doing you know if they get budget from a brand who's to say that they cut that in, in, into half and you know and specifically only give like a certain percentage to the influencers they deal with so i think there's there's the whole issue of the industry not really having as much protective measures to really protect influencers as they navigate the space um so that has also been a thing that i think the page has definitely drawn light to and yeah. has, um kind of created a way whereby people are able to speak more a lot more openly about that without mm -hmm. fear of being like blackboard in the space as well yeah. and also dealing with you know say for example white influencers really you know realizing wow like the scale of it and and I've had a lot of white influencers and from other demographics as well sending their highest paid in a in a way of wanting to support and actually you know bridge the gap and help um, um, other influencers and black influencers specifically um, to kind of really know okay this is not right and mm -hmm. These are the things I do, and and that's the help I can give in yeah. in um in the best way I can as of now. So I think all those factors together um has really you know um blown up the page in in, in essence. Yeah, yeah. I think you really answered my next question, which was about the positive impact. And I think um, one thing influencer pay gap has given is transparency. I think when there's a lack of transparency, it creates space for there to be inequality. Um, so yeah, it's really grateful that you've created this platform um, to make things um, a lot more visible and open. And when thinking about brands, so what response have you gotten from brands um, in regards to influencer pay gap? It's a, it's a mixed bag, of course. Um, <laughs> not shocking at all. Um, yeah. It's definitely disruptive in a sense. Um, so, and I think when I started it, I didn't really, like, I, I comprehended it. I, I expected, you know, maybe it might not all go down well but <laughs> I guess when you, each day passes and you see you know the discussions on the page and and the kind of things you realize that okay to some brands it is kind of seen as you know 
I guess, a level of accountability that they might not necessarily have been prepared for. Um, I think it kind of takes the control um, out of, you know, the brand side and, and puts it in the hands of, you know, influencers being able to speak openly about something. I, I, and I think the anonymity um, played a huge, huge role in that because, again, these are a, lo a lot of these things people know. Um, especially on the influencer side. Um, but again, like it's this over, overall fear of, you know, blackballing yourself in a space where you already don't feel like you're prioritized. Um, and so on, on, from the brand side, we've had brands that, you know, have, you know, reached out and seen that they're featured on the page and um, have actually wanted to solve the issue. You know, we've had a brand that reached out and um, wanted to get in contact with the person who wrote in and um with the permission of the person i i kind of bridged that you know um kind of relationship and they spoke about it and that influencer was lowballed um significantly um she was approached for 100 pounds and um she has like over 600,000 i think something to do with tiktok kind of reach and um that brand then has ceased working with the agency that approached her by DM and said that that is something they they actually did not do not stand by you know and and it's also kind of an acceptance that there's so many players in it as well you know some sometimes it might be the brand directly sometimes it might be that they've outsourced something to an agency and the agency hasn't necessarily handled it in the right way so we've had brands like that we've also had brands that are not necessarily pleased that they're featured on the page um but either way even with brands that haven't necessarily been pleased that they've been featured on the page you do see that they've ha actually as a result of being featured on the page page and seeing the comments implemented some kind of change you know um be that you know okay maybe because this is a gifting um situation that we have here maybe the deliverables that we were asking for given the fact that it's gifting is completely ludicrous <laughs> given given what it is and and they have made those changes they might not want to account it to the page you know but it's it's clear that after seeing so many people speak about how they don't agree with x y and z they've decided to adjust accordingly so it's been a mixed bag i think if i'm being honest for the most part in terms of brands that have actually approached the page it hasn't necessarily all been negative you know i think there has been a a kind of over a real sense of you know it's happened so what do we do now like how do we you know implement um the necessary change and um yeah so it's been mixed yeah that's good to hear that obviously like despite there being a both positive and negative comments at least there's been like action taking and we're really pushing the needle for it so that's amazing to hear um coming over to you tom um during your time at Metail, can you tell us a bit about instances of when tech and data were used to support diversity and inclusion and how these actions were received one of the things that we were very much focused on at Metail was around diversity of body image and sort of helping uh, the consumer be able to basically virtually try clothes on their, their actual self. Um, so a key aspect of that was the ability to see clothes on and move away from the projected ideal of the, the model that you see for all shots of clothing. You know, you, the, the aspirational form that you'll never get to. 
Um, and that was, that was a key focus for us. And it was really interesting when we would go into meetings with, with brands and have conversations around, um, you know, the ability for them to show clothes on the sizes that their consumers might be and the ethnicity they might be, et cetera. And there was a big resistance to that, a huge resistance. I remember having a conversation with um, the head of production at ASOS. Um, she had the data which showed that when she shot uh, uh, clothes on um, uh, uh, the black models, who were slightly more curvy than uh, the the norm that she was used to. She was ex Prada. Mm. That they they sold more, but she was still very much focused on the no, no. I have to get the skinny waif white girl, and I'll I'll reshoot later. And I was like, but your data is telling you the yeah. answer of of yeah. of what sells more and what doesn't. But you're going against that because you're still basically entrenched in this idea that there is a visual aesthetic and that's the visual aesthetic. So that was that that was a constant actually going on from there. You know, I met um, probably make her nameless, but the the person who invented fast fashion. And she said, you know, um, people don't want to see clothes on a size 12 model. Mm-hmm. So there's that there's that basis don't want to see on a size 12 model they don't want to see on any other ethnicity this is it and this is what we have and we were constantly fighting against that and we we could present evidence from consumers who said wow for the first time i'm able to see clothes on something closer to my image wow i can see something i can create a size 16 model and see clothes on me and they consumers were ready for it brands weren't um and i found it very interesting that we therefore got pulled actually to more emerging countries where they were able and willing to experiment and try different things and they were trying to get more consumers whereas what you have here in the uk is you have a declining fashion market it's minus two percent year on year so you have very high level of caution fear and conservatism um I'm really interested to know now, having sold Metail last year, but now in a world where everything is pr- practically virtual, you've seen e-commerce go from 20% to 30% during coronavirus. You can't actually physically try stuff on in, in the changing room, whether we'll start to see the industry finally take on um, uh, uh, innovation and diversity. So we were in a position where we could generate now those virtual well, we could generate the model images where you could basically dynamically change all the model images by diversity, by ethnicity, by by shape, by form. If that technology exists and is available and is there for the retailer and brands to use. So if they're not going to innovate now, when are they going to do it? I think um, it's really interesting how like as we progress as society, people are really trying to rely on like data and science and evidence when they're making their decisions. But of course, like ingrained biases are still things that really hold people back from fully delving into these um, into these like evidence based things, which does support the need for more representation. so Jess, you have experience working with a range of media publications and we know um, within fashion media particularly, um, we've seen there being a lot of discussion about increased representation um, within like the media. Um, so it was commonly believed that topics surrounding content um, 
impact includes diversity and inclusion, it just doesn't sell. Do you think that's changed now? And if so, how? Yes. So in the entire of my working life, I've definitely seen the unconscious or conscious dismissal of stories from black and brown authors and storytellers, um, basically any other demographic that wasn't from the team that was sat there writing the stories themselves. Um, I've seen the, like, the tokenism where I've seen editors literally say verbatim, oh, we need to put a black face in there and then they think their work is done. Um, or we need to sort of tick off, oh, we've covered that story or there was a black person in that story, there was a brown person in that story, so we're good for the month. And that kind of narrative. Um, but in terms of um, the actual um, stories and the appetite for it, I've always noticed that there has been an appetite for it and these stories often get picked up by other publications and repurposed and spread much more wider than the, the everyday stories from the same demographic do so i think i agree with the previous when sometimes the data and the stats that you get from these articles that do show the diverse representation and different people's point of view they do do well but brands just really really have this almost but like whether it's conscious or unconscious, like I said, just wall up against it. Um, I've also heard sort of the, the argument that, well, we are, this not our reader, it's not our audience, um, it's not that diverse. And without any real insight into who the audience actually is. So again, that's just coming from personal bias, personal preference. It's probably easier for these writers and these people to, to stick to the stories that they know and they've written all the time and that suits them because they're their privilege means they've never had to think about my stories being told because they always are. Um, in terms of the changes that I've seen in, term, in terms of the appetite for this type of content, um, it's, it's quite difficult for me to see whether it's changed long term. I think there's 100% been a change short term, which has been really great to see. But I do think we are in this moment of hyper visibility and awareness of black stories and black creators right now. And I'm Unfortunately, I, I just hope that that doesn't peter out once the world goes back to normal after coronavirus and people are back in the working life and things like that. Um, but the, the journalism that I'm seeing now from my place of work and from the, the publications that I follow seems to be really, really great. And I know that a lot of my friends are sort of freelance writers and they're being booked on gigs that they've never been sort of up for before, working with like Vogue and Stylist and these massive uh, publications that they would have never had a foot in the door before. Um, yeah. So I just hope that continues for them and for the community 100%. Um, I think we're still seeing tokenism on cover shoots and the booking of say, or interviews of really big black celebrity names. Um, but then again, I want to know about the staff and the actual writers and the sources that they're using in these articles rather than just the talent. Um, so yes, I think there is definitely an appetite for it at the moment and I would, absolutely love and I'll keep pushing for that to continue uh, but the cynic in me is not so sure whether this will continue and the longevity of it. I think yeah it's interesting like Tom said earlier it's about um, how this like second iteration of um, BLM it's not just about oh let's have like Rihanna or just like one like well-known black star on the cover it's like we want to know about the everyday um, black person we want to know about the people behind the scenes we want to know about everyday life and it's like we know colloquially that there's an appetite for it we have the data to support that there's an appetite for it um, so it's just about you know 
getting the people behind the scenes to really push the conversation forward and make things happen. Um, and then coming back to you, Tom, um, so you talked a bit about your experience in retail um, and what you guys did over there to kind of support diversity and representation. What do you think that technology can do to even further support diversity and inclusion? And are there any risks that you think we should be aware of? So, I mean, I think the first point I think has been sort of mentioned several times already is around you know data and information and transparency so information is power if you don't have the information you can't improve anything so you can't improve what you don't measure and so for me right now I've been I've co-founded this venture called Extend Ventures which is looking at trying to diversify access to finance and we're going about that by using technology so we're looking at all business performance across all businesses in the UK and we're using computer vision which was um, an expertise that I had retail um, in we're using computer vision to basically find directors names and find images of directors and apply ethnicity so that we can understand the performance of ethnically diverse businesses versus none and bring that into the conversation and change the narrative so what I'm expecting to show um, and it's been replicated in a study that was done in the US is that ethnically diverse businesses do better um, than the average and perform better and hence there's a structural bias in access to finance which um, either the government could basically help to fill or at least you could basically change the narrative with people it's like giving money to ethnically diverse or black businesses is not about charity it's actually about you know a business opportunity which is uh, going unfilled and untapped so i think it starts with information and generating that there are there are dangers around it so you know as i've mentioned we're going to be using computer vision machine learning a lot of the machine learning based ai tools which are out there currently are have huge biases inbuilt into them mm -hmm. um because they're trained on white data sets and and as a consequence they move in that direction and a lot of technology has the risks of being overly biased and overly trained on specific groups and therefore not being inclusive and therefore propagating that you know the prime perfect example is the automatic um, soap dispensers that don't detect black skin over white skin because they were ne never tested that way and there's a lot of these types of um, technologies which are now being rolled out and of varying degrees of quality so the ability for basically systemic biases to almost unwittingly be propagated through society is extremely high yeah um i do have to say i'm so thankful for the work you're doing at extend ventures um i think it's so amazing that we're seeing this rise in black businesses um like coinciding um with like a rise in um, awareness of the strength of the black and brown pound and um how this consumer group really um does have the money to spend and um how like with the second wave of the black lives matter movement there's increased solidarity and that desire to support um black businesses um yeah. so it's good that there's that support out there um, and then coming to you again Jess um, as a social media manager um, what changes do you predict to see from brands when they are interacting with their online audiences especially now that online audiences are um, really talking about like the causes um, that are really passionate about them and really changing the way that they're 
um, discussing different topics online. Yeah, I think what, as I said earlier, um, but I'll go into a bit more, I think what this movement has really done is just brought to light the absolute need for accountability and visibility. And it's a beautiful thing. And I think it, it ties into everything. Um, and I think from the social media point of view, you need to carry that over to absolutely every aspect also. Um, so talking to users, not as robots, but as people having a, a face of the brand, a personality of the brand and, and pledging to do better and to work towards actually doing all the things that you talk about rather than just putting out soulless social media posts for it. Um, I think as what I'm learning for at work and everything, I think the world's just going to come even more um, reliant on tech, whether it's with shopping, um, AI, whether it's actually in, in introducing so many more features into the social media space. And I think simultaneously to that, thanks to Gen Z and for whatever other factors, the authenticity of it needs to remain so pure and so in line with it um, to really to maintain that trust of the brand and to actually reach the audiences that you want to through the authenticity that you portray. Um, I'd like to see brands sort of take it upon themselves to be more inclusive continuously, not just because of fear of, of being called out or um, just because it's sort of a trend to hop on, but actually because the, the light's been switched on and now the ignorance is not an excuse and it doesn't exist anymore and the education and the tools are out there and I'd like to see brands actually take that upon their stride and say we have a real opportunity here to do better and um, by better that doesn't doesn't always just mean being um, the best in terms of representation but it's as we've said it's profitable too um, so yeah that's what I'd yeah. like to Mm. And staying on the topic of brands and their online communities, Adesua, um, what do you envision for the future of the influencer pay gap? I think um, a lot to do with kind of re-education, I think is so important. I feel like there are people from all different kind of levels. So, for example, people who are interested in um, kind of navigating the influencer space and don't necessarily know how to or where to start. Um, and then you also have people, you know, who have significant, built significant platforms, but mm -hmm. still feel, you know, by and large overlooked. I think part of um, the kind of future of influencer pay gap is also working with the data as well. Um, and just seeing what kind of trends we're seeing and um, just the ways in which the data, like Tom was saying, and um, can kind of inform um, movement forward and progress. Um, as well as just, you know, community, I guess. I think one thing that has been so, a bit, for me, heartwarming, um, creating the space is just seeing how people interact with one another. I think, you know, there's an overall sense, you know, so many people, you know, kind of peddle this whole idea of like the influencer space can be like clicky and, and things like that. And I think it's, it's beautiful to see people of different you know you know levels of influence communicate with one another and, and literally help one another like navigate the space as well um and want to enable each other to kind of really do well and and really prosper um so i think community as well because i think even if it's my community if it's someone else's community i think community is always a good kind of um catalyst for change because i think people are able to really express themselves without a sense of fear, you know? And I, and I think one huge thing that I'm really, really hoping, um, you know, that the industry as a whole um, really facilitates is this 
kind of sense people are okay to give feedback you know i think when things are just one way top down and you know you don't necessarily want to hear you know even in quote ugly things that you think you know you it's impossible for you to really be branded as then i really do think it impedes growth you know and be allowing people to really give you honest feedback and say this is how we feel and this is how I feel as an, an individual as well um, really um, would be a great way for people to kind of you know stop pretending things don't happen you know acknowledge they do and really work with people to really understand what the next steps are so those are kind of my hopes um, I just want to see people win you know I know everyone says that but I genuinely do um, want to see people win and and I, I really just want the space to feel a, a little bit bit more accommodating of um you know underrepresented individuals so yeah yeah i think what you said about community is so true i think the brands that have really thrived this year are the ones who built a strong online community and didn't just you know go and put out random content and messaging is the one that the ones that had a ongoing dialogue with their consumer base and listened to them and responded to their needs and did so in an in an authentic and genuine way um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see more of that going forward. And just to wrap up, um, looking ahead, Tom, based on your experience with specific, um, what specific changes do you think companies need to make in order to achieve true inclusivity? I think, um, I think it all starts with understanding who your customer base are and understanding that if you want to be able to serve your customer base, you need to be reflective of it. So, um, you know, I once heard that a Google person saying, well, they serve the world. So their internal organization has to look like the world. And that sounds obvious, right? So how, how can you, how can you really, um, resonate with the customer? How can you really know what they're about? How can you really, um, uh, communicate with them on the level if you, if you don't have the same mixture of people in your own company as as your customer base so i think that that has to be the starting point and then you need to look through all levels to really understand what are the barriers or not what are the biases or not to allowing people to enter your organization and also succeed and thrive within your organization i spoke to somebody recently from hsbc who said they've been looking hard internally at their organization realize there are only two um black senior managers in the organization and more to the point from only from having the conversation did they realize that um you know black members of staff wouldn't apply to a job in another team if they didn't see any other black people in that team at all so there there are the there are the there's a starting point of basically people um uh, filtering themselves out of the potential to go into things so a company can't just be passive they need to be active in in terms of basically presenting the opportunities that will make somebody be able to land and thrive you know a lot of people will do that oh we've got to recruit loads of people so let's burst open the funnel and then suddenly hire a bunch of people and then they land inside the organization the culture hasn't changed the ability to succeed hasn't changed so those people then, of course, leave the organization. So you yeah. need to be able to show that you are a, a culture which will enable positive development of all types of people. And this is all types of diversity, right? And all types of prejudices. 
Um, so that's really important. If you start from that that starting point of no prejudice, then you know that's how you can generate the potential for real inclusivity. That, in, inclusivity doesn't mean that you just have exactly the right proportions of every type of person in your organization. It means that everybody has the chance and everybody has an equitable and equal potential to succeed. Yeah, I think I completely agree. I think it's what you said just about having that basic understanding. I think a lot of minorities, like we have these shared experiences about like going into an environment and being like the only one and having that like a bit of pressure and impacting your work. And it's almost like a thing that we all know, but yeah, maybe like it's not a well-known thing. And now that these conversations are happening, like bigger brands and like these big companies, they're being aware of it and they're like having the conversation about how to have like inclusivity in an in a genuine way and like what changes need to be made to make people feel comfortable enough to like just do good work within the skin they're in, basically. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited for all of the work you guys are all doing. Um, thank you for such a really, like, truly insightful conversation. Tom, Adesu, and Jess, thanks for joining me today. Um, and to keep up with our Disrupting the Timeline video podcast, make sure to follow Rizma on all social media platforms. If you have any questions about any topics discussed or about our solutions, please email us at hello at whereisma.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, stay safe and be well. Thank you.